Let's open to the book of Zechariah. Our aim tonight is to get through Zechariah 4, 5, and 6. I already took a while back the golden lampstand and olive tree on a Sunday morning, uh, but we'll go verse by verse through it tonight. And um, just to refresh your memory, uh, Zechariah uh, is receiving, oh, some commentators debate between seven, eight, and ten different visions when the Lord communicates with him. And it's sort of a progression that unfolds that really ties in the book of Revelation in ways that you've never um, probably seen before. And so the first one, as we, we remember, is uh, he was, um, we had the, the rider under the myrtle trees. The rider under red horse was the Lord. And then the second vision was the four horns and the four smiths or carpenters. Uh, the next um, thing that he saw in the night, remember these are not dreams, but he's actually awake during these and seeing them, is a man with a measuring line. And then we had um, um, Joshua, the high priest, and the Lord and Satan. And Satan wanted to take out the high priest Joshua. And um, the Lord rebuked Satan. That was one of them. Then we had the branch and the stone with the seven eyes. Uh, The first four visions symbolize the outward deliverance from the slavery and the oppression of Babylon. Remember that Zechariah is going to be ministering during the same time as Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel. And his primary purpose as a civil ruler would have been to encourage the people because they were very uh, disheartened because of the the rubbish that uh, um, that they had to go back to. I mean, before I came here tonight, I'm watching uh, uh, the evening news, and um, boulders bigger than this pulpit and trees uh, <laughs> this big around. Um, in Santa Barbara, taking out whole communities, and um, uh, three or four feet of uh, of uh, mud. So they're uh, going back to rebuild, <laughs> and it's got to be completely disheartening to go. Imagine building your own house, and then and then um, it being taken out just like that. And you got to have plans, what am I going to do? Do I move on or do I stay and go back and try to put this mess back together? Well, it has to be disheartening for those folks in Santa Barbara. So Zerubbabel's main call is twofold. He's got to minister to the people to encourage them to rebuild the wall and the temple. And uh, the issue, the main issue that we're going to see tonight is as they continually come back that... Um, their lives were corrupted in Babylon where they became carnal uh, in the area of doing business. And we'll get to that and we'll see it as, as the Bible study unfolds tonight. So we find that the vision also looks not just to then, but amazing how this ties into the book of Revelation. So it's twofold. Again, we've mentioned d- double prophecies. Zechariah is full of double prophecies because they point to um, the book of Revelation, primarily chapter 6 and chapter 11 and chapter 10. So we'll be in Revelation 6 tonight, uh, Revelation 10, and Revelation 11. Um, Okay. As we look at this one, Let me remind you that he is awake. This is uh, things that are being shown to him by the Lord. At this point, he has already had six visions. So as we look at chapter 4, we're going into now the seventh, the golden lampstand and the olive tree. I'm going to ask the guys to put it up on the screen right now. And I'm going to ask them to leave it up there for until, just, just leave it there for a duration until we get to chapter 5. So let's read the first 
uh, four verses of, uh, of Zechariah. Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And so I said, I'm, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand, seven lampstand, with seven pipes to the seven lamps. And two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. So I answered and I spoke to the angel who was with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So this is basically what he saw. Uh, We're just seeing the branches here. Um, The olive tree, of course, is a source of olive oil. And they have the best olive oil in the world. um, And different grades of it. Um, They actually, we visited um, an olive factory where they do the production. And show us the different grades and qualities of of the oil. But uh, we will come back to this. This is going to have a double-fold application. It's going to relate to uh, Zerubbabel and also to Joshua, but it's also going to clearly be identified in the book of Revelation, and we'll get to that in a bit, a minute, when we get to uh, the last part of this chapter that deals with the two olive branches. Without any doubt, they're the fulfillment of Revelation 11 and the two witnesses. But I want to work my way slowly up to this because there's a lot of practical things in our walk with the Lord. There's a lot of practical things we can see just on how churches um, uh, should be maintained and operated. And so as we look at this one, we find um, in verse 3, that uh, we have these seven golden lampstands. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I didn't mention that one, did I? 1, 6, 10, 11. Revelation 1 is where I want to go right now. Revelation 1, of course, John, the year is 96 AD. John is the only disciple who has not been martyred. They say they tried to, to kill him, and they couldn't. And so he was put on the island of Patmos. Um, I've had the privilege of being on Patmos. It's an absolutely gorgeous um, uh, island in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Turkey. And we find that John here is, has a revelation of the Lord. He, he appears to John. And let's pick it up as it's described in, in verse, uh, let's go back to verse 12. And John turns around, he's told to write seven letters to seven churches. And verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice and spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So there's one lampstand, but it has these seven Branches that are branching out. Basically, what you have here is an unlimited supply of oil, continual. Now, the job of like John the Baptist's father, when it was his turn to do temple duty, would have been to go in daily to make sure there was enough oil in the receptacles and also to trim the wicks. The light was not to go out. And now we have a picture of that job not having to be done because there's a continual flow into it. And here, when the Lord talks to John to write these things, one one of the things he saw was seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand on me and says, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. So, he does not... 
He receives uh, the worship. Only the Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So we have um, one of the few places, a description of the um, glorified Lord. And he says, I'm the one who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, and here's the key to the book of Revelation, verse 19. I want you to write the things that you've seen. All right, that's chapter 1. And then he says, um, write the things that are, that would be present tense, and that would be the seven letters to the seven churches, chapters 2 and 3, all in red letters. And the things which will take place after this. Now that begins chapter 6, no more red letters, or actually chapter 4, no more red letters, because that would be the end of the church age. Now, is there symbolism in the Bible? Absolutely. But it is always explained, and if not in the same chapter, either from the book, usually the, uh, the prophets that we're reading, like Zechariah, we'll make a reference to it, primarily Daniel. And I, I've said this over and over again, you can't really understand Revelation unless you understand the, the prophets. And we're studying Zechariah, and it amazes me um, how much they're, they're, they're intertwined. But this is symbolic, but now in the next couple chap verses, it's going to tell us what the symbolism is. What are the seven stars, and what are the seven lampstands? So we read in verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstand, the seven stars are the, um, the messengers of the seven churches, i I believe the, the word there is actually to the pastor or the overseer of the church. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So basically the Lord is saying that he is in the midst of the church. And that um, uh, he walks. And uh, great comfort to me the idea that the Lord is holding uh, us in his hand. And so we have, you can go back to Zechariah, but I wanted to point out as we begin our study that the, um, the lampstand here was the only light uh, in the temple. It would not have been in the temple. It was two main chambers, and um, the lampstands themselves would have been in the holy place. And only the Ark of the Covenant would have been in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest, Joshua, in this case, could go in there, and that's only once a year, on Yom Kippur. All right, so that's verses 1 through 4. The question is, uh, he sees the vision, and um, Zechariah says, What's up? What are these, my Lord? And And then the angel, who is the Lord, talked with me and answered me, Do you not know what are these? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Um, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become like a plain. Uh, And uh, here's the word of the Lord. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Well, we could really get sidetracked here because the whole basis of um, of, um, Chuck, when uh, he began the Calvary Chapels, this was our key verse besides Acts 2, Uh, but this would be the other one. Either the Lord builds uh, the house or man builds the house. Good place for an amen. And what he's saying here, he's a word of encouragement Directly to Zerubbabel. Now it's going to apply to the church at large, but I I just put my notes here, either spirit-led or purpose-driven. And what we see and why there's going to be a decline in Bible-believing churches today as they get away farther and farther from teaching all of the Bible, uh, they will revert to... um, people who have naturally gifted abilities. And um, again, what comes to mind is I can't help but think of the influence of, the, of uh, 
um, Willow Creek, and uh, their focus on how to do ministry. So they have their major leadership conference every year. But basically, they are people that they bring in who are very, very gifted in the commercial world. They're CEOs over corporations. Uh, They're not even, most of them are not even believers. And so now we have men trying to do things that only God can do. And the Lord says, unless I build a house, you labor in vain. Unless I watch over the city, the watchman labors in vain. And unless the Lord is the one holding you in his hand, (laughs) then it's all in vain. But he's speaking this word, the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, and not by might, not by power, says the Lord. And then it makes this, who do you think you are, O mountain? So the question here is, what is a mountain? Before before Zerubbabel, you're going to become like a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone uh, without shouts of grace, grace, grace to it. We need to dive into this scripture a little bit and unfold it. Because remember last week in chapter 5, or, or chapter um, 3, just turn a page back and let me remind you. Uh, Joshua the high priest is in filthy clothes, fil- filthy garments. And we have Jesus and Satan and Satan wants to take out Joshua. Why? Because he's a high priest. He's in charge of doing the work of the Lord. So the, the Lord just rebukes him and says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That's the end of that discussion. And, but what I want to point out, what is the mountain here? Uh, the mountaintop um, is, what's a good word for it? Opposition. And um, opposition, and let's call it spiritual warfare. Let me give you a couple of examples so you know um, where I'm going with this. Go back to Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with two tablets in his hand. Okay? And he comes, I would call that a mountaintop experience, speaking to the Lord, who's given him now the commandments, not just commandments, but 613 um, laws in the book of Leviticus, how, how, how to live life. And that's what he came down. I call that a mountaintop experience. But when he got to the bottom of the mountain, what did he find? Well, he found people naked and there was a golden calf and they were having a party around it and the first set of stones he cast down and they were broke and they had to go through round true after Moses rebuked them for what they were doing what's your point well the enemy had his own agenda and he wanted them to worship this golden calf instead of worshiping the Lord Uh, another example um I'm going to take you to this one. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17 in the New Testament. And again, what we have here is a mountaintop experience. And it's very similar to what we just read in Revelation 1 because we have Peter, James, and John going up into a high mountain. Now, again, we were just in Israel, and they they tell us that it's this one right here. It doesn't say that. Uh, it just said he took them to a high mountain by themselves. But you got to have a place for the tourists to say, well, this is where it happened. They don't know that. It could have been any high one. I think it's our bell myself, but I don't know. We'll find out someday. But here the Lord is glorified before them. And who shows up but Moses and Elijah? Now, this is going to play into when we talk about the two olive branches, the two olive trees, in Revelation chapter 11, and why I, I believe they're Moses and Elijah. But, you know, they're completely overwhelmed, and then they're so infatuated with Moses and Elijah that Peter gets sidetracked, wants to talk about them. And the Lord, the Father from heaven, interrupts him. This is one of the place for those of 
people who don't believe or hold to the Trinity, this is a no-brainer. You can, you can shut them up real easy with this because you have Jesus on the mountaintop and you have the Father speaking from heaven. And we read in verse 8, the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You know, the focus is on Jesus, not Moses and Elijah. So I would call that a mountaintop experience. Let's say you got to be in that inner circle that day. And um, they were coming down the mountain. They had all these questions. But when they got down there at the bottom of it, of the mountain, um, they had a demon-possessed man. So again, we're going from a very high experience to a very difficult time of oppression and demonic activity. All right, let's make it practical here. And that is, there are going to be times in your life when the Holy Spirit is going to be so thick that you can cut him with a knife. And you're going to be overwhelmed by his presence. I've been in situations like that, and I've observed it, and there's nothing like it on this planet. And then you can flip it right over and have days like you wonder, am I really saved or not? Well, somebody want to say amen to that? Because it's true. I mean, read half the Psalms. What are they about? David pouring out of, out of his heart. Oh, Lord, help me. I'm in, I'm in this pit of despair. Please help. Please deliver. So what we have here is a man who's demon-possessed, and uh, the disciples couldn't do anything about it. Usually they could. Usually they could cast out demons. Not this one. Um, verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers seizure severely, and he's often falls into the fire and often into the water, so I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. And then Jesus, um, this is sort of surprising, he says, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? That sounds like, like frustration on the Lord's part. Doesn't it to you? In other words, guys, what's the problem here? Where's your faith? I gave you the authority to do this. But then he goes on to clarify, um, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. He came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. And they said, the disciples came and said, Lord, why couldn't we cast him out? And the Lord says, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will have to say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this, this kind, this kind of demon right here, he was more of a heavyweight. There's different, there's powers and principalities at different levels in the demonic realm. And he says, however, this kind does not come out except by power, prayer and fasting. And, but what I want to point to is never in Jesus' ministry did he move a mountain. Okay? And here we're told by, in Zechariah, I think we've made the point, and let's go back now and look at this verse again. Who are you, O great mountain? So the mountain here, um, and let's see, what verses? Uh, I think I want to go to... Um, Nehemiah at this time, yeah. Nehemiah, okay, we got to go back right, Nehemiah is right after um, Ezra and right before Esther. So I'm going to give you a moment to get there because I want you to, to see what I think this mountain is here. Who are you, old mountain? Well, what was the mountain? Well, there were two guys in this case named Shambalat and Tobiah. They were building the wall, but they were very discouraged. So the mountain is opposition and obstacles that would hinder them from doing the work of the Lord. Okay, reality check. You're a Christian, and um, you want your friends to be saved. And if you take that seriously, you have to know this. The more serious you are about doing it, the more serious your adversary will bring opposition and obstacles into your life. And you need to know that. 
You're going to need to know that you're going to have a mountaintop experience one day and feel like the disciples the next day, where's your faith? Where's, why are you guys in unbelief? And um, the problem is that there really is a spiritual realm. But the Lord said to Zechariah, not by power, not by strength. And he's saying, this mountain that's against Zerubbabel. Well, Zerubbabel would have uh, um, been the civil ruler during the encouragement to the people. And Joshua, he would have been the religious um, uh, leader during this period of time. But in Nehemiah, let's get right down to how um, this people uh, would come against God and his work. It's happening right now today. Uh, on the last Sunday, remember, I, I put uh, the president of Turkey on the screen because um, Trump is moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and he says, okay, that's the red line. You guys crossed it. We're going to kill the Jews, just like that. And that's human opposition, but with demonic forces behind it. If you turn to Nehemiah 4, the mountain here is going to, my Bible has opposition through ridicule, opposition in verse 7 through attack, and opposition through plain old discouragement. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 12. The setting is Jerusalem. They're back from captivity, and they're there to work. But there was opposition with, with these two guys named Shambalat, but it, it happened when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall that he was furious. He was very indignant, sort of like the president of Turkey. And he mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, interesting, Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they, will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? And then there's Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him and said, whatever they build, if, even if a fox goes up to it, he'll break it down. you got Jews building a wall and have a fox go, go by it, and it'll probably fall over. So this is ridiculing them. Ridicule can be discouraging. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach on their heads and give them a plunder to a land of captivity. So they answered the ridicule with prayer. And remember the Lord says, this kind, after the mountaintop experience, this kind of a demon doesn't come out without what? Prayer and fasting. Prayer is our lifeblood in the church. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They got encouraged. Their attitude changed when they had a mind to do the work of the Lord. Verse 7, now it happened when Shambalat and Tobiah the Arab, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the wall of Jerusalem were being restored and that the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry. And all of them um, conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and became of them. We set a watch against them by day and by night. And then verses 10 through 12, opposition through discouragement. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. There's so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. And again, I flash on uh, the mudslides that are taking out a good part of, of Santa Barbara. And our adversaries said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt there came that they were told ten times, from whatever place you turn, there will be upon us. So my point is that I don't believe the Lord ever really moved a mountain, but we can look at 
a situation. Let's go back now to Zechariah and tie this all together. And he asks the question, who are you, O great mountain? Well, the great mountain in the Christian walk is opposition. Are Christians being opposed today? On every level. More and more every day. And obstacles, things that'll come up that will cause you to be weary. We're told not to be weary in well-doing. But to continue, even when the going gets rough and we got a mountain in front of us and it's, an, it's like Shambhalat in Tobiah, to um, discourage. All right, that's verse 7. And, um, but the Lord says, concerning Zerubbabel, you're going to become a mountain, you're going to become like a plain. And he's going to bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace. Now they're there to build it, but now he's telling him, I'm going to finish the job that you started. I'm going to make that obstacle, Shambhala and Tobiah, and any other opposition. If they're in the way, then I'm going to get them out of the way. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hand of Zerubbabel has laid the foundation of this temple. His hand will also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? He started when there was discouragement, opposition, but the people he got the people to have a mind to work. Now they're laying the temple, and now the Lord is saying, you're not only going to see the beginning of this thing, but as um, Rubbable, you're going to actually see the day when it's done, when they're all shouting, um, and praising the Lord and saying, grace, grace. His hand will also finish it, and then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And they are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. So, who are the two olive branches locally in context with the chapter that we're reading, they would be Joshua the high priest and um, uh, Zerubbabel. And Zechariah is receiving this word from the Lord that it's going to be done, that he's going to do the work, and it will be done. All right, that brings us... Well, let's, let's make the practical application for you and I. Um, when the Lord saved you, that was a good work. It was his work. And the work was a work of um, taking our filthy garments like Joshua and giving us clean ones. And my main point on Sunday was from Romans where it's either all grace or works. You can't have both. You're either going to try to work your way in heaven or you accept God's grace and then he'll give you the clean garments. But if you're going to... Uh, the verse that I quoted was... Um, it's either grace or it's works, but you can't combine the two. So which one do you want? And the answer is you want grace, and then you get the white garments. And um, that's a good work. But then he says, Philippians 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in you, what's he going to do? He's going to finish the work that he started in you. As long as you stay in the boat. And long as you abide in the vine, there's a lot of ifs in there. And we all know people that we love and care about who once walked with the Lord fervently or on fire for the Lord, and today are totally backslidden. They stopped abiding in grace. And somewhere along the line, they got pulled off track, and they thought it might be in, in um, you know, something other. I told you a story about a friend that I ran into that um, was the main part of, the, of our fellowship on, a, on worship team way back in the little white church. And um, ran into her, and we, were, we talked, and I just wanted to know, are you still walking with the Lord and plugged in? She said, are you plugged in? And she says, yeah, yoga. And my heart sank. And I thought, how could such a thing be to go from, you know, being a key part of our 
family to backsliding all these years to now you saying yoga? <laughs> and I ask her a couple of questions. Do you understand yoga? The kundalini spirit? Do you know what that is? And I'm um, going to get her Carol Matriciani's um, DVD on yoga. And just for the coming up, they'll probably have it again this year at Life Fest. And uh, they had four different places that you could go and practice Christian yoga. Gang, there's no such thing as Christian yoga. The incantations and the things that are there are clearly set up to be Shambhalas and Tobias to get you away from grace into something else that's going to try to satisfy. Okay, can't get too sidetracked here because I want to get through my chapters. But um, we uh, get to verse 11. Then I answered and said to them, okay, that was all local. Now we're going to jump into the future to something that has not yet happened in verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? One at the right hand of the lampstand and the other at the left. So there they are up on the screen. And I further answered and said to him, and what are the two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the two golden pipes which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said to me, do you not know who these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this is not a gray area. Turn to Revelation 11, and it is crystal clear. This is black and white. And that when we study the prophets, remember, over and over again, we have double prophecies. And we have one set of lampstands that are referring to Zerubbabel and uh, his work through Zechariah. But in Revelation 11, remember John was told to write the things that he's seen, chapter 1, the things that are uh, the church age and then the things that are after this. Well, here in chapter 11, we read in verse Three, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before the God of the whole earth. Clear enough? It goes right back to Zechariah. This is a, a complete um, a fulfillment, but one that's yet future and yet one had a local application. And we have to get used to seeing this uh, as we study through the prophets. One that uh, I could quote many, but one that you'll be familiar with is in um, um, uh, Zechariah 9. Uh, maybe it's Zephaniah. 9 9. Um, Behold, um, my servant comes lowly riding on a colt of a fold. And that was when Jesus was on the donkey on Palm Sunday, and that was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. But that's a prophecy. And that's verse 9. But verse 10 says, and he will rule from sea to sea. His kingdom will be from sea to sea. Well, verse 9 was fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And um, as far as... the Looking at the world today, I don't see the Lord <laughs> uh, reigning over this world right now, but he's going to. So between verse 9 and 10, you have a gap of over 2,000 years. And so we need to get used to that's how the Holy Spirit works in the prophets pointing us to that day. That's what's happening here. Local ap- application, but then... It gives me confidence when I read the book of Revelation that this is really going to happen. And the timing of this is important because 1,260 days is three and a half years. So uh, what just makes so much sense to me is we're so close to the coming of the Lord that when it does happen, the unthinkable would have happened, and the church which is a restraining force right now, according to Second Thessalonians 2, 
even though the true church and those who hold the belief of teaching the whole counsel of God, and especially Bible prophecy, will become more and more of a minority. To the point where the Lord someday is going to say, okay, now. No man knows the day or the hour, but it's going to happen, and we're going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye, and we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Somebody want to say amen? amen? For now. But all of a sudden, we're gone. And the restraining force, the church, will be removed but God always has a witness. In this case, these two guys appear on the scene, and I believe it's immediately after the rapture of the church. And they are going to fulfill Zechariah chapter 4, right now, what we just read in chapter verses 11 and 12. These two guys are the fulfillment. Why do I believe they're Moses and Elijah? Well, for a lot of reasons. Uh, the last verse in the Old Testament says that the Lord is going to send Elijah before that great and terrible day of the Lord. The first three and a half years uh, begins that seven-year period of time that um, um, has to be fulfilled. And so uh, that's how the Old Testament ends with the promise of Elijah coming. Well, this is where he comes, right here. And he has a ministry that lasts for three and a half years. The other one is Moses. Well, why do you say that, Dwight? Well, because of what we just read in Matthew 17. Jesus is glorified, and who shows up? Moses and Elisha. What's that all about? What were they talking about? I like to say they were having a staff meeting about future events and talking about what's going to be. And why would they show up anyway? There's a lot of, a lot of questions. The disciples had questions going down the hill. And uh, the third reason I believe it's Moses and Elijah because of the very miracles that they do. It says they have power to shut heaven all the days of their prophecy. Well, how long is their prophecy? Three and a half years. And I always ask the question, that's crazy. Has that ever happened before? And the answer is yes, and by the same man. Elijah to Ahab. Ahab, you and Jezebel have turned our nation into worshiping Baal. Consequences. Consequences is not going to rain until I say so. So we were up on Mount Carmel, and I think Mike Fernandez gave the Bible study while we were up there, and he explained that for three and a half years it didn't rain, and when that time was up, he goes and he prays, and um, he kept telling his uh, servant boy to go look out. You can see the Mediterranean from Mount Carmel on a clear day. And he says, you see any rain clouds? He goes, nope. So he keeps praying. Sent him back, nope, no rain clouds. Go check again. Well, there's this little cloud out there. It looks like a hand. He says, that's it. Get ready. Let's get out of here because it's going to pour. And James tells us in James chapter 5 that Elijah this is a word of encouragement to you. Uh, look out for these, these uh, little old praying grandmothers. They're not to be messed with. They know how to pray. And it says, Elijah was a natural man no different than you or me. I'm going to just let that sit, sit in. Whoa, of course, it's Elijah. No, no, no. He was a man with natural affections just like you and just like me. Matter of fact, he had his own mountaintop experience. He called fire down from heaven one day, and the next day after it happened, he runs all the way to a cave, and he hides, and he says, Lord, take my life, I want to die. That's the next day. Talk about going from a mountaintop experience to I want to die. But James tells us that it was three and a half years. Jesus also verifies that. So because of the miracle, but then the turning the water into blood. Well, that's got Moses written all over it. So we might be wrong, but as we go through the Bible, let's go back now to Zechariah, and we, we will finish chapter 4. Zechariah asks the Lord, well, who are these two olive branches? And the idea of them having the ability to perform miracles whenever they wanted to. 
Oil is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So what you have with the two witnesses is an unlimited resource. Look back at the picture. An unlimited resource of the Holy Spirit where it tells us in Revelation 11, they can do miracles whenever they want to. And if anybody tries to stop them, they kill them. And um, so that finishes chapter 4. But again, make the connection. Here we have a direct connection. Double prophecy in Zechariah for local fulfillment, but also yet future fulfillment. Why the local fulfillment? Important to study all of the Bible? Because that's history. I can go back and say the Bible said it happened. It happened. Did they rebuild that temple? Yep, they sure did. And did they shout, glory, glory, hallelujah? Yep, they sure did. Well, that gives me confidence that if the Lord says it's going to happen, yet future, it's going to happen in future. Another good place for an amen. Nothing is going to stop that from happening. Chapter 5, the flying scroll. Now we're having, remember, he's not sleeping. These are things that the Lord is showing him. So in chapter 5, then I turned and raised my eyes, and I saw there a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And he said, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubics, and its width is 10 cubics. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to what is on this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to what is on that side of the scroll. And I sent out the curse, curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of the house and consume it with its timber and its stone. Okay, what is the scroll? Turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2. Ezekiel 2, we'll start with verse 9 and we'll just read up to chapter 3, verse 4. So Ezekiel 2, verse... Okay, I better check my notes here. That should be right. Ezekiel... Oh, there it is. Okay, verse 9. Now when I looked, this is Ezekiel, there, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written in it. So now we know that the scroll is a book. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mournings and woe. What is the book of Jeremiah? They call him the weeping prophet for a reason. He had no good news for him. He says, you guys have served the other gods? Consequences, lamentations, woes, captivity. And moreover, chapter 3, verse 1, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and speak to the house of Israel. In other words, give them the word of God. But it's got to be in you before you can give it to somebody else. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I gave you. So I ate it and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. And he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Um, Paul says, that which I receive from the Lord, I've given unto you. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 10. And again, I want you to notice how the Holy Spirit weaves these together. Okay, verse 1. I saw still another mighty angel clothed coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right hand on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice uh, as when a lion roars, 
And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. This is one of the great mysteries of the Bible right here. And when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Come on. If that's not a tease, I don't know what is. Why tell us in the first place? That's there. We'll find out someday. And the angel with whom I was standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seven angels, and when he was about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servant the prophets. Zechariah. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Okay, are you making the connections? I can see how Zechariah and Revelation are just dovetailing together. It'll leave me more so before we're done with our study tonight. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. John's vision is not through yet. And what he was digesting, the book of Revelation is sweet. I mean, when you read the promises that are given to us, do you know that you're going to have a new name someday? And um, do you know that you're going to be a king and reign and rule? Just for the first thousand years, we know what we're going to be doing. (laughs) We're going to be reigning and ruling as kings with the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds pretty sweet to me. (laughs) I'll take that job, Lord. Serving with the, the Lord during that thousand years. And then he says things like, don't you know, you're going to judge angels someday? I'm going to judge angels someday? You're going to judge angels someday? And so that's, there's a lot of sweet promises, sweet and precious promises that are there. But once you begin to digest the book of Revelation, and you find that you can't get out of the sealed judgments without a quarter of the earth's population being destroyed. And um, I can't, put into words. There's been world wars. There's been um, Stalin and, and the millions that died in the concentra- his co- the gulag in the concentration camps. Nothing. Mussolini, Hitler, all these people that were major evils in the world, nothing compared to what's coming during the Great Tribulation period. So, um, here we have in chapter 10, God's word. Uh, The idea is what we're doing right now. We're having a Bible study. But the Lord says, man can't live by bread alone. He's likening this book to actual food, but by every word that comes from him. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit can't bring anything back to remembrance unless it's already part of the data that's been downloaded using modern terminology. Is everybody with me? And that's why the church is so weak today. Once you get rooted, what we call rooted and grounded, I mean, you really get to know your Bible. You're not going to be shaken. And the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. But you're not supposed to keep it in. The Bible says that he's going to give us his Holy Spirit. It's going to be like living waters that will flow out of you. So it's not just, oh, good, I'm saved, and I'm going to keep this all to myself. No. Once you've got it in you, then the idea is, now he says, now you're going to, you must prophesy to many tongues, peoples, and nations. What did he tell? The very last thing he told his disciples, the great suggestion. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. No, the great commission. And But to be commissioned, you got to be equipped. And the way that Chuck did it in the early days with the guys that wanted 
wanted to go out. This is how Chuck thought. He, he thought, well, you know, Jesus spent three years with the disciples and taught them. So he said, okay, you've got to sit and be in every service for the next three years. And if you do that and you sit under the teaching and you get, a, you get a, um, some spiritual meat on your bones, yeah, then we'll send you out, but not before then. The Bible says don't lay hands on any man suddenly. And it amazes me when I hear churches saying, now we need workers in this area, so raise your hand if you will be a worker. Well, how do you know what you're getting? <laughs> you could get a guy that is willing to do it but doesn't have any meat on his bones whatsoever. So the Bible says you don't lay hands on people suddenly. Um, being a novice, uh, they could be lifted up and get trapped by pride and the snare of the devil. So when people come here and say, you know, what, what can I do? How, how can I get plugged in? Well, you can't. Well, what do you mean I can't? Well, you've got to be here for six months first. Well, why do I have to be here for six months first? I tell them, because after six months, you might not like me. <laughs> and after six months, I might not like you either. <laughs> but my Bible says that I'm not supposed to do that. And yet people do it all the time. And we wonder um, why um, churches are weak when it gets into the area of equipping people. Now, my job, according to Ephesians, as a pastor teacher, is to teach the Bible. And it's to equip you to do the work of ministry. But how many people in Christianity today would think, well, you know, that's your job. And um, you're the one who's supposed to do the work of, of ministry. You're the one who's supposed to do all the witnessing. No, I'm not. You know, when people ask me what I do, I said, well, I, I only have to work three hours a week. Two services on Sunday, and you know, and then, then one on Wednesday, I only work three hours a week. And I let them think about it for a while. <laughs> So, where were we? And we were left off at verse 11. And John, Ezekiel was told to eat the book. And, and then Zechariah was told in the flying scroll to take it and eat it. And what was he eating? Woes and lamentations. And um, and wasn't... Um, and it was to go out and call out those that, um, well, like it says here, the, to the thief and, and bringing God's word. That's, that's what brings the, the conviction. All right, it brings us to the next vision. And um, I'm not going to get through all this, but we'll get through the woman in the basket. I thought for sure I could get through six, but I should have known better. Last one is the woman in the basket. And this is where we'll be on Sunday. So we'll, we'll scratch the top of the surface of it tonight. So, the woman in the, in the basket. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, lift your eyes now and see what is that that goes forth. And so I asked, what is it? And he said, it's a basket that is going forth. He also said, this is the resemblance throughout the earth. And here is a lead disc lifted up. This is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had the wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the, the basket between the earth and heaven. And so I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me to build a house for it in the land of Shinar. When it is ready, the basket will be set there on the base. Now, the application here um, to me is clearly yet future and deals with Revelation 18. First of all, the word uh, here for the basket is actually um, where we have the word 
uh, ephah in verse 6. It should read uh, uh, an ephah. And what is an ephah? An ephah is a dry measure equal to a little more than a bushel. Uh, It was used to measure such commodities as flour. How much flour do you want? Well, I want an ephah full of flour. So you're getting a little more than a bushel and barley. Therefore, this symbolized trade or commerce. Uh, The lead weight. Well, when you went shopping in biblical times, when you bought something, you, you say, well, I want an ephah's worth. Well, how do you know it? Well, you have your lead balances and you, you, you would weigh these things out. And basically, if you summed it all up, what you have here is a picture of commercialism and commerce. Now, when the Babylonian captives came back to Jerusalem, they learned commercialism, and they learned it from the Gentiles. They became good businessmen, and they inquired this love for riches, which they saw among the Gentiles in Babylon. And even to this day, they excel in business uh, and in commerce. Um, in verse 10, it says that, um, two, that two women are going to carry this wickedness um, into a place especially prepared in the land of Shinar. Now, I will go into quite a bit of detail on this, uh, for a house that is there in the land of Shinar, and when it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. As we close up tonight, go to Revelation 18, just to whet your appetite a little bit for Sunday. And we have 17 and 18 is just detail events that happen towards the end of the tribulation. The end of the tribulation ends with chapter 16 with the battle of Armageddon in verse uh, 16 and then the great hailstone, the last judgment, the bold judgment. Now in 17 and 18, we have um, detailed description of God judging the religious system that will exist after the rapture of the church. It will be headquartered in Rome, and the reason I know that is in verse 18, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. In John's time, it was the Roman Empire. Now, let's make this, I'm going to take just a couple minutes. My concern today with ecumenicalism, and can't we all just get along and be one great big happy church family? No, in order to do that, you have to, to drop certain doctrinal distinctives. But people are willing to do that today, but where it's leading is to a one-world religion. The Bible clearly says it's coming. So we should see foreshadows of that ahead of time where churches are not holding to their doctrinal distinctives, but are willing to leave doctrine so that there can be more unity. I'll just leave it with that. Chapter 18, on the other hand, is the judgment that's going to come in one hour on a certain city, and it's called Babylon. So now we have Babylon. What, when they came back, what corrupted them and what had to be taken from them is to get the commercialism out of them. And so what we have in chapter 18, uh, verse 1, and I'll just read the first because of the amount of time. It says, After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried and said, Mightily with a loud voice, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a habitation of demons. Uh, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. By the way, storks in um, in the book of Leviticus, when they were describing what foods are clean and what is unclean. Everybody knows one for sure that was unclean. That's pork, right? Uh, 
Pork is not kosher. Well, neither was a stork. And when you do it, there's some shellfish that's, that, uh, that wasn't kosher. It, the idea of what's being carried here is we have a city that's being prepared for one reason and one reason only. It's going to become the commercial center of the world. And God is going to deal with commercialism. And um, verse 9, The kings of the earth who commit fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. Why would they be afraid from a distance? Why didn't they want to get close to her? And with what I know of radioactivity, that is my guess. Alas, alas, for that great city Babylon, that mightiest city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Well, we can do that with nukes today real easily, and it will cause you to stand at a distance. Uh, The details that we'll get into this on Sunday is I believe the city exists today. It has to be a port city, and it has to meet the criteria, and the wailing, the people who wail, are the people who are would be considered the Wall Street leaders today. And I'm past my time, so I hope that teased you enough. So for Sunday, we will uh, get through this. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Oh, Lord, there's so much here. As we go through these, just these two chapters tonight in Zechariah, And um, we see how it's just so intertwined with the book of Revelation. Lord, we know the the history is a fact of history, so we know that it's true. And it came to pass. That gives us confidence that when we read events of judging the destruction of one city of Rome in one day in chapter 17, we know that that's going to happen someday. And we also know that there's going to be a city, a commercial center, that you're also going to deal with. And, you know, the things and the riches of this world are fleeting, and yet most of the people, Americans especially, are caught up way too much in um, seeking commercial goods and especially money. And Lord as you had to deal with those through Zechariah when they came back from captivity to be about the Lord's business, we see that you're going to someday fulfill this prophecy of this wickedness being brought to the plains of Shinar, roughly the area of what we call modern-day Iran and Iraq and that whole plain of Shinar. So, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and as we go, we pray that you'd um, prepare our hearts to do a little bit more in-depth on this on Sunday morning. Thank you for your word, Jesus. We love you, and pray you'd go before us the rest of this night. In Jesus' name, amen.